Welcome to another episode of Civic Cipher. I'm your host, Ramses Ja. They call me Q Ward, and that just so happens to be my first initial and my last name. I don't <laughs> want to confuse nobody. What's up, Ja? Everything, man. What's going on? Oh, man. A promised land. Yes, indeed. So, welcome to Black History Month. Our, uh, this is our first Black History Month as a show. Indeed. And we're going to talk about it. The thing is, um, I want to talk about some of the things that aren't as widely known. Because, you know, every year we hear about, you know, Dr. King and we hear about, you know, uh, George Washington Carver making peanut butter and, you know, black people invented stoplights and cotton gins and all this sort of stuff. But there are some things that are a part of the black African-American, we'll call it uh, legacy, that aren't as well known. Um, but, you know, people should know about them. People should be educated. You know, what happens is a lot of times folks will kind of throw their hands up when it comes to black folks. You know, black folks are, you know, they need to pull themselves up. They need to figure out their own problems in their community and so forth. And I get it. If you don't, if you don't have any deeper knowledge, that sounds sensible. Sounds like, yeah, of course that makes sense. But if you understand that, you know, that those, those still waters run deep um, and you know how deep it gets, then perhaps you might find yourself being a bit more understanding, empathetic, compassionate, um, supportive, etc. And so, um, in that spirit, I would like to, you know, talk about some black history. So, um, I need to suggest to everyone that you know, just like any anyone's history, any group of people, it's not all pretty. Um, some of it is, it may be difficult to revisit. Um, and on today's show, one person in particular, um, if we have enough time, we'll get to him. But, uh, you know, some of the, his legacy, as far as African-Americans are concerned, is particularly troubling. But again, I think that it helps to, um, explain. As a matter of fact, you know, what? We, we can talk about him now, you know. Um, so uh, we'll start there. Um one of the things that's happening in the world is that, you know, everyone's getting vaccinated for COVID-19. I just got my second vaccine, so I am living the COVID-free lifestyle. I'm, I'm mask off. COVID-proof. <laughs> as, as, as future would, would suggest, <laughs> uh, mask off out here. Um, uh, no, I'm just joking. I still wear my mask. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of black folks have been... Um, particularly concerned about getting that vaccine vaccine because of a deep-seated mistrust of the medical community and the government by black folks and um you know i do want to talk about the tuskegee experiments because you know we we spent some time talking about that we said that we'd peel back a few more layers when we had the time but um i mentioned in that episode that it actually goes back further than that it, it goes back to the beginning of black people in this country um being used as uh human guinea pigs and so you know once upon a time as we all know you used to be able to buy people in this country you could own them and they were your property 
Could you buy a specific group of people? Um, if or could, you, long, yeah, could you, you pick from any variety of people, or was could, it just no? You could you actually you could pick from any variety of people, provided that they were black African people. Oh, okay, yeah, that's what that's what. So, I was. so you know, Henry Ford, you can get any color as long as it's black. So I think he got that from from slavery, perhaps. So anyway, um, so today we're going to talk about, or first rather, we're going to talk about someone named uh, James Marion Sims, Doctor James Marion Sims. So um, he's credited as the father, uh, the father of modern gynecology. Um, he developed tools and surgical techniques related to women's reproductive health. In 1876, he was named president of the American Medical Association, and in 1880, he became president of the American Gynecological Gynecological Society. Make sure I get that right. Um, an organization that he helped find, found. So. Um, you know, a man who certainly provided a, a, a basis for, you know, research in women's studies. Um, I think I have some, some notes highlighted where it suggests that once upon a time, it was not really, uh, in good taste to deal with women's reproductive organs. Um, it just was something that the medical community didn't really take seriously, didn't really look into women's reproductive health. And this guy kind of championed that, you know, um, he just, he peeped the weak, weakness in the rap game and sold it, you know, or in the, the vagina game in this instance. Um, so he, the reason he was able to get so much off uh, in terms of research and, and so much, uh, experimenting and, and studies and, rep and reports and things like that written is because his research was conducted on the bodies of enslaved black Africans and he used them as medical test subjects um, and uh, one thing that uh, I have noted that is still being brought up to this day is he experimented on them without anesthesia um, there's a there's a, a passage I want to read in just a second but um, that's a, uh, something that still perpetuates this day. I remember reading something maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, something like that, uh, pertaining to this deep-seated mistrust that black folks have with the medical community. And there was a doctor um, who was not black, but this doctor, you know, he was under the assumption that black people experience pain at a lower rate than white folks. Um, and I wish I had earmarked it you know, but this, you know, oh, and he was, wow. he was well-meaning well and he was educated, of course. So this guy's not out there doing the same things he once did. Um, but you know, that it just goes to show you how powerful myths can be and how, how powerful prejudice and, and racism can be, you know, even if you're not trying to, um, cause harm to folks, you know, um, if, if you take these certain things to be true and you don't know any better and you don't have that perspective, then you perpetuate that those racist beliefs even if you don't actively engage in hating people like if i don't believe that dogs feel pain <laughs> and i kick dogs you know or whatever it is i do to dogs and i don't think that they feel pain you know then you you get you get what i'm saying there um but once you recognize okay these dogs feel pain it might change the way you behave so um that was a terrible example who wants to kick dogs but you know i i use dogs because um, oftentimes on this show, uh, we have to compare ourselves to dogs because, 
a lot of times unfavorably white, at that. But a lot of times, white folks will make a big deal if something bad is happening to an animal. Yeah, that's what I said. So we we compare to unfavorably to dogs, right? Right. So. Sadly. Um. So yes, this is one uh, story about um, Black history in this country. Um, a lot of the medical research that you get the benefit of um, having and and the experience and 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 so forth the 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 medicine that you enjoy um that research a good amount of it was conducted on uh enslaved black folks you know this is before animal testing and before all that other sort of stuff you know so this is and this is around the time when you see um medicine go from just kind of being a something that you have to study for a year or two and then you can become a doctor to something where you have to like really really study and really know what the human body is capable of is because during um, slavery, uh, you know, so much research was done. And in the early 1900s, there were things like the Tuskegee experiments, things like that, that we know about. And many more things that my assumption is that we don't know about, we'll never know about, um, that were conducted on actual living human beings. And as history has taught us, at least in this country, um, but largely around the world, the most disposable human beings um, often are melanated. And so um, this guy is just one of the people who is, as I stated, um, he's celebrated as the father of, you know, gynecology um, and uh, or mo modern gynecology. Like he invented a bunch of tools that help you to get in there um, and, you know, get busy. In fact, I want to read um, one of these passages here. Um, he started off with no specific gynecological training, um, examining and treating female organs was widely considered offensive and unsavory. As I mentioned, um, his interest in treating women changed when he was asked to help a page, a patient who had fallen off a horse and was suffering from pelvic and back pain, um, to treat this woman's injury. Sims realized he needed to look directly into her vagina. He positioned her on all fours, leaning forward and then used his fingers to help him see inside. This discovery helped him develop the precursor to the modern speculum. Um, and then another example, um, this is in the public domain too, by the way, so you can look this up yourself. <coughs> Brace yourself. <laughs> um, all right, we know three of the names of the female fistula patients from Sims's own records, Lucy, Anarcha and Betsy. The first one he operated on was 18-year-old Lucy. Um, these were slaves. 18-year-old um, Lucy who had given birth a few months prior and hadn't been able to control her bladder since. Um, during the procedure, patients were commonly naked and asked to perch on their knees and bend forward into their elbows uh, so their heads rested on their hands. Lucy endured an hour-long surgery, screaming and crying out in pain as nearly a dozen other doctors watched. As Sims later wrote, Lucy's agony was extreme. She became extremely ill due to his controversial use of a sponge to drain the urine away from the bladder, which led to her, which led her to contract blood poisoning. I thought she was going to die. It took Lucy two to three months to recover entirely from the effects of the operation. Um, again, a slave, with no choice in the matter, and uh, no anesthesia. The pain and scream i mean the screaming yeah that's and the agony didn't give them the impression that maybe she felt pain funny how that works right wow but, you know we we understand that there is a long history of people telling themselves a separate story 
that is not based on the reality of the world or the reality that they even see. It could happen right in front of them, but if they choose not to acknowledge it or see it, then it may as well not be true. So, um, you know, this is how it goes. Uh, fortunately, we have a show called Civic Cipher, and we're able to talk about that. Um, so I'll continue. Uh, for a long time, Sims fistula surgeries were not successful. After 30 operations on one woman, a 17-year-old enslaved woman named Anarka, who was, sorry, who had a very traumatic labor and delivery, he finally, quote, perfected his method. After four years of experimentation, afterwards, he began to practice on white women using anesthesia, which was new to the medical field at the time. Um, and then I'll spare you the rest of this, but he goes on to discuss how he experimented on enslaved children and so forth. So, happy Black History Month. Happy. It's an <laughs> interesting word choice. Well, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important that we discuss these things, that we know about them. Um, and, uh, you know, there's good things and there's troubling things. And all of it is, is history. All of it is there for public consumption. And we need to know where we come from so that history doesn't repeat itself. And it gives us an idea of what to push for as we move forward. And so, you know, these stories um, certainly help frame where we are, how we were treated, and give us a baseline to demand what we deserve some folks make calls for reparations so you know you, you gotta and you gotta bear in mind that there's more than just the the impact that that might have on one or two or three people you know um there are generational psychological traumas that are perpetuated um for those who have read the the willie lynch letter um regardless of whether or not you believe it to be in a first person account of what took place or a work of fiction um the the logic and the uh the the reasoning is sound and so those are the things that um you know these things can can bring to life and so um yeah black history speaking of black history i do want to take a moment before we move on to give a shout out to somebody very very important to me um, who has, I believe, made black history. It might be, a, you know, just a footnote or a small little, you know, uh, paragraph in black history, but I I'll take it. Um, a very, very, very dear friend of mine um, recently was named the uh, official DJ for the Phoenix Suns. And uh, I wanted to take a moment to shout him out on the radio because that's a tremendous accomplishment. It's a black accomplishment and it's one more feather in our cap. So congratulations hmm. to Q Ward. That's pretty dope. Congrats <laughs> to that to that fella as well. <laughs> no man, seriously. It's pretty um, pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's big. So next time you guys go to a, a Suns game, you'll hear Q on the uh the turntables doing his thing. So um shouts to automatic and and automatic as well. All right, so moving on, um, some more black history for you. Um, you know, as I mentioned that we, when we were initially talking about the, uh, the vaccine rollout, we didn't get a chance to go into too much detail about the Tuskegee experiments. Um, and so I wanted to take some time today to explain exactly what the Tuskegee experiments were. 
Um, so allow me to read this. The, the, tis, the Tuskegee experiment began in 1932 at a time when there was no known treatment for syphilis, a contagious venereal disease. After being recruited by, by the promise of free medical care, 600 African-American men in Macon County, Alabama, were enrolled in the project, which aimed to study the full progression of the disease. Participants were primarily sharecroppers, and many had never before visited a doctor. Doctors from the U.S. Public Health Service uh, were running the study. That U.S. stands for United States. Yeah, it was a government-backed study. Bill Clinton had to apologize for this many years later, of course, but... Um, but yeah, uh, 1932, uh, they recruited 600 uh, African-American folks to study the effects of syphilis. Um, the quick and dirty version of this is that these people were poor, limited means, black, uh, the most disposable in society. Uh, these people were deliberately, intentionally infected with syphilis and then given the treatment. And this is uh, something that needs to be said because this is the most important uh, component of this equation is that they did not know that they were deliberately infected with syphilis. No one told them that that was what was going to happen, was, you know, whatever. And this is why the government ultimately... It wasn't didn't. in the pamphlet that they received yeah. when they signed up. Yeah. So um, what originally what they were getting treated for was um, they, what they referred to as bad blood, right? Um, and bad blood, you know, was just a, a catch-all term, you know, anything that, you know, whatever. So if you got bad blood or you think you have bad blood, you know, come on down, we'll, we'll fix you up and, you know, you can be a part of a medical study. And then what they were doing was infecting them with syphilis so that they could treat the syphilis, right? So um, you can imagine how that sort of scarring on the, and once this came out, once everyone knew about this, then everything started looking suspect. You know what the, I mean? The distrust is earned. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's not. It's not like it's you know, not random paranoia. And, oh, and and then here's the crazy part. We're talking about history, but um, you know, as I mentioned, there is still a, a sizable disconnect between the medical community. Of course, we know that there's a disconnect between the government and black people, but the medical community and black people, as I mentioned, there are doctors that are alive right now, practicing medicine right now, who have some idea that black people are fundamentally different in the way that we experience pain, in the way that we respond to treatment, and in the way that we articulate our pain. You know, you know, if I say my leg hurts, you know, the, they, they, it's not taken as seriously as often as someone who is white, you know. Um, this happens a lot with women. This is why more black women die during childbirth and so forth, you know. And th these are all very Googleable, and as you know, Google does not cost money. So, um, you know, I, obviously I can't talk about everything on the show, but um, just because this is black history doesn't mean that it's not taking place today. And just because um, this has happened in the past doesn't mean it is not still happening today. And so, as you said, Q, the distrust is very much earned. Now our challenge as black people is to learn how to trust, learn how to love, you know, and so forth, which is why I was so big on getting that COVID vaccine. 1930s people, because I think people hear about the Tuskegee experiments and their mind is a very long time ago. My grandmother was almost an adult when this happened. 
my grandmother's still alive. It's like, I don't want this to feel like yeah. it's Ancient five history. generations ago. Yeah, no. It's, well, the, the last person um, who was uh, the last participant of the Tuskegee experiments passed away in 2004. Now, bear in mind that syphilis that was deliberately injected into these human beings wiped most of them out. And then a lot of them, like, died from other things, you know, related to the disease. But, um, yeah, so, okay, let me read on. So, what does it say? Uh, the Associated Press um, broke the story in July 1972, forcing the study to finally shut down. That means that the Tuskegee experiments went from 1932 to 1972. So my mom was almost 30 <laughs> when the experiment stopped. <laughs> I just want to keep keep you guys keep giving you guys some perspective on how recent this was. My mother, not grandmother. So your mother is 28 years old when the Tuskegee experiments were finally shut down. So you can imagine this was like, like incredible. Like this was like huge news, especially in the black community. So that distrust in the seventies, when this came out, you know, this in the thirties, when, when they first started doing the experience, no one knew what was happening in the seventies when everyone found out, which is again, very relatively speaking, that's modern history. There's people who were alive that remember seeing that. Oh my God, they did what? You know, and there's some people who are as educated as we are that know how deep these roots go. And so their distrust is valid, you know, um, or, or valid is perhaps not the right word, but it's earned. That's why I said earned. Earned, earned is a better word. Right. Um, now, again, we can't we can't distrust everything, you know, but which is a. uh kind of disturbing and growing problem i know like we went we've gone from oh, i don't really know to okay no facts are real yeah and okay i won't i won't yeah we can't I we can't derail, go from one extreme to the other us. yeah i know what you i mean. won't derail us but there's a lot of people that look like us that come from where we come from that are kind of preying on that distrust exactly and using it as a catch-all for don't believe anything nothing's real Everything is against you. Yeah. And that's a tough place to operate from as well. Just just operating in full out bad faith is just not good. Um, so let's see. Um hundred and twenty eight participants died from syphilis. Um forty spouses had been diagnosed with it. And the disease had been passed to 19 children at birth. Those people are still alive, some of them. Um, as a result of the Tuskegee experiment, many African-Americans developed a lingering deep mistrust of public health officials and vaccines. Um, during his apology. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, Bill Clinton, when he was president, he had to come and apologize. For he didn't this. have to. Well, I want to make sure we say that. That's fair. That's fair. But he did. And that is needed to. an acknowledgement. Yeah, he needed to, but didn't have to. Yeah, there's a lot to. of stuff that no one's ever going to apologize yes. for. That's fair. Um, but, you know, he comes and he uh, apologized for it. And what that does is it makes people like us, me and you, Q, who 
say these things out loud, look less crazy and less angry and less radical to folks that aren't as studied. Usually they're white folks that feel like we should be very happy with what we've been given and our station in life. Yeah. Um, and these are the sorts of people that would say to us, well, you weren't in the Tuskegee experiment, so what is the problem with that? You know, and and you know, the er everything is wrong, and the world only looks the way that it looks to them. You know, and if we don't see it their way, then we're somehow wrong. And so, um, by Clinton apologizing for this, it allows us to live in a world where, okay, we both have to agree on the facts. We both have to agree that this happened. And we have to deal with the implications of that because if the government never even acknowledged it, much less apologize for it. Then we, again, we sound like crazy people to those people. We sound like enemies to those people somehow, just by stating the, the, the truth that, uh, you know, the first doctor we talked about, all his records are in the public domain. Now this guy's all that stuff. Is out and, it's, and it's important to point out as, as ignorant as some of these things may sound to us. Uh, we talked about on one of our shows, there's a, uh, it's either a burning or a hanging photograph. Yeah. And their family's picnic. president at, at this picnic. It's important to point out by the very nature of those people being there with their kids and in essence, having a good time. Some of them sincerely didn't think anything was wrong with what they were doing. Yeah. And as heinous as it is, it's different than now where people are fully aware that it's not okay. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's it's as heinous and vile as some of these things sound, especially the things you were saying with regard to the the experiments on the the young ladies, as he perfected his methods. Yeah. There may have been people, himself included, who seriously thought, even with the pain and agony and screaming and discomfort that was very very clear, that black people did feel painless. And there, there were a generation or generations, plural of people who felt we were scientifically inferior and may have used, you know, what they thought was clear science and their religion and their just teachings from their parents. Like we believe in Santa Claus once upon a time until we grow up and learn better. Right. Um, a lot of those things were taught and people believed them because that's what you believe. You know, the, the same with the religion that you practice. It was taught to you. You didn't weren't born with the consciousness to know about God and the role that he played in your life and how you viewed your religion, be it Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, um, Jewish, Catholic, whatever the case. Right. So uh, a lot of these things were indoctrined to people from childhood at a time where everyone felt that way. Just like 30 years ago, the way that people spoke about uh, our brothers in the L LGBTQ community was a lot different than it is today. And I'm not talking a hundred years ago. I'm talking about when I was a teenager, Yeah, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, views are continually changing. People becoming more informed, more educated. Uh, I don't like to use the word tolerant. Like I'll tolerate you if you're different from me. It just sounds awful, but it's that's the kind of word that they use. People are becoming more accepting i think is a better word sure. tolerant yeah. of people who practice a different religion a different lifestyle come from a different background and look different than we do um i think it's important that as a whole we evolve and 
I think that's why this is kind of me speaking to some things that I've said on the show prior, why I get so upset at people who still choose hate and divisiveness and, you know, racism, because those things aren't charged to ignorance anymore. You don't not know better anymore. Yeah. You're, you're just choosing that. Yeah. And that's why I'm so, you know, I, I say on the show all the time, Rams is the, is the, the, the heart and the consciousness of the show. Cause sometimes I'm mad <laughs> and it's just because, you know, people choosing evil over good to put it simple kind of digs at me man because once upon a time even though it was terrible people really didn't know any better right and it, it, those doctors were developed to maintain a superiority and a supremacy so even the roots of that doctrine were bad but the children of those people were taught something that they thought was fact right and now we know better and we're still teaching that same stuff and not we but people are still teaching those same things um, and you know that that's disturbing. That's what upsets me the most. You want to hear something funny? Is that <clears throat> once upon a time I was uh lived in some apartments, and I was I used to get babysat by this lady named Betty, uh, Betty Van Winkle. She's passed away now. Now Betty was a million years old when I met her. I was probably like ten, something like that, and uh. I have two little sisters and a little brother. Um, at the time, my youngest sister was still baby mode, you know, probably in diapers still. Um, and I remember Betty telling me something like, you know, well, black people, they do have, a, you, you know, there is an odor that black people have. Ooh, wee. You know, so you just have to make sure that you scrub extra hard, you know, and, and you wear perfume ooh, and lotion ooh, and everything. Ooh, so. ooh, wee. Betty. Now, Betty... Now, I was a kid, you know, and no one, I'd never heard this before. So Betty telling me this was like, oh my God, I odor, you know, a slight odor or whatever, however she said it. I'm like, huh, you know, well, now I'm very aware, you know, because, you know, around 10 is when you start. So now I got the scrub harder. You start understanding like, okay, there's, there's girls, there's, even, even if I'm not into girls all the way, because I didn't get into girls until I was middle school, you know what I mean? But I don't want to get teased, right? So, um, you know, little kids are mean. So it gave me a little bit of a complex. You know, to this day, I have much cologne. I have like 17 deodorants. I, you know, my bathroom is a mess. A clean mess, but, you know, got a lot of variety in there. Um, but yeah, so Betty told me this. And I assumed that it was true because she loved us i do believe that she did you know she learned something from somebody who lived in the 1800s you know um when she was a little girl because that her parents had to based on her age alone you know and i knew betty in the 90s and betty was i don't know 70 when i met her or something like that so the thing is it wasn't until i was 24 23 i'm 38 now so it wasn't until i was you know early to mid 20s when i recognized that uh africans taught europeans how to bathe you know um you remember there was a lot of plagues and stuff and those things were being um you know perpetuated throughout europe and you know the, 
the hygiene practices of Northern Africans um, became particularly useful to those Europeans in um, preventing the spread of all the different plagues that was claiming the lives of them and their loved ones and their family, right? And so the teachings of these Africans, um, it, it's, it's funny when you, when you see that, it's like, wait a minute, hold on. This is the opposite of what I was told, you know? And, and flip this. <laughs> Once upon a time in this country, you know, everyone bathed, might've been like once a week, they all use the same bath water, you know, and all this. And, and you have to bear in mind that a lot of these ideas, in my assumption, in my estimation come from, well, if you have people who are poor, who have two pairs of clothes, their Sunday best and their work clothes, you know, and they might not even have shoes, you know, you can't even consider them poor because they're property. Dogs and cats aren't poor or rich, they're property, right? So these people are not, that's, they're not subject to those considerations. So uh, you have slaves that, you know, rarely if ever get to bathe. They're always around each other and they're in squalor, it's their life, you know, they live next to the hogs, the hog pens. Um, if there is a reputation that develops that, you know, they, they don't smell that great. <laughs> um, you know, by the time it gets to, you know, a 10 year old Ramses being passed from generation to generation, the black people have a slight odor to them. By the time it gets to me, um, it's gone through, you know, we've kind of evolved past that, but the, the rumor stays and that's the power of a rumor again. So, um, just a quick story that I'm glad I got to share. You know, I got a few of those, but today was the day for that one. All right. Black history, moving on. Uh, you know the youngest person ever executed uh, in the United States of America was black? I did not know that, but nothing about that surprises fact surprises me. me. Want to hear a cool story? Shoot. It's not cool. Um, George Stinney Jr., uh, he was sentenced to death uh, at 14 years old. A electrocuted him and uh, they put the little thing on his head and shocked him there's actually a photograph of him that exists if you wanted to look it up definitely don't want to look it up um it's not it's not he's not dead you know in the picture it's just he's crying you know and he's got the thing on his head they, they snapped a photograph of him um and uh, but it's you know you know there's there's just been this call you know say their name say his name say her name you know in in recent uh, years and months and i think that it's important for allies we've been through enough trauma so we don't have to continue to stare at these you know but um i think that seeing the face of a child weeping especially after you hear this story um will make it real for some folks who might, again, just be casual listeners uh, of the show or they just happen to catch us on a Saturday or Sunday whenever you're listening. Um, you know, um, my words will only go so far, but for you to make this, you know, really commit to this. You know, if you're, if you're trying to be a better person, trying to be a better brother or sister to your, your African-American brothers and sisters, um, you know, this is one way to do it. Look in the face of this child as he weeps in the final moments of his life. He was a real person. He was born, he had a heartbeat, he was endowed with consciousness, he had a future, he had dreams and goals, things that scared him, 
probably had a favorite food. He made people laugh. He cried. Everything. Just like you and me. And they executed him. They snuffed his life out at 14 years old. Um, during his trial, even on the day of his execution, he always carried a Bible in his hand claiming to be innocent. For what that's worth. He was accused of killing two white girls, 11-year-old Betty and Mary, age seven. The bodies were found near the house where the teenager resided with his parents. At that time, all members of the jury were white. Of course. The trial lasted only two hours and the sentence was- Wait, wait, wait. A double murder trial lasted two hours? Yeah, wanna read it again? That's, that's what it said. But you know why, though, right? I think you know why. Um, but this is really what's going to uh, fry your brain. Whoa. The, the trial lasted only two hours. The sentence was dictated 10 minutes later. It was quick to extinguish his life. They'd already made their minds up. When they saw who the charges were brought against, they'd already made their mind up. Yeah, he did it, and we're going to punish him the worst way we know how. All right, so and we know he did it, even though there might not be any evidence. We know he did it. Oh, this this gets way worse. <laughs> um, George Stenny Jr. Again, I want you to remember that. By the way, if you're just tuning in to Civic Cipher, I'm your host Ramses Ja, and this is Quentin. But they call me Q Ward. Yes, indeed. And we are celebrating black history. Um, some parts you may not know about. Uh, right now, we're talking about George Stenny Jr., the youngest human being to be executed in the United States. Um, the boy's parents were threatened and prevented from being present in the courtroom and subsequently expelled from that city. Before the execution, George spent 81 days in prison without being able to see his parents. He was held in solitary 80 miles from the city. He was heard alone without the presence of his parents or a lawyer. In other words, they found two dead people. They found someone who lived close enough that was black. Have you ever heard the expression, man, I was just black and nearby? That he's literally a victim of that. For those of you who've never heard that expression, that's a common expression for black folks um, to just be black and nearby. And it means exactly what you think it means. It's just like, I just got hemmed up on some nonsense. I didn't have nothing to do with it. I was just the closest, easiest target for the people who were looking for a close, easy target. And I was black enough to fit that description. So here we are. The fit the description part is important. Right. Because they weren't just looking for any target. And that's part of, you know, we, we talk about how somehow our skin makes us appear criminal to police and to, you know, a lot of folks. Um, this is kind of, you know, what what he was up against. He was black and nearby. Um, all right. And again, I want to reiterate, he never got a chance to talk to a lawyer, never got a chance to talk to his parents. Their kid went out to play one day and then they tried convicted and sentenced in less than three hours. 
So, um, he was electrocuted with 5,380 volts in his head. 70 years later, his innocence was finally proven to a judge in South Carolina. The boy was innocent. Someone set him up, set it up to blame him uh, for the crime. Um, and you can read all the rest of that if you want. He, again, George Stinney Jr., S-T-I-N-N-E-Y on Wikipedia. Yeah, I'm going to look that up because I love to, to learn about how his you know, innocence was proven. You're going you're gonna to see his face. But, yeah, that was actually something that the government acknowledged. And, uh, you know, that's obviously that comes from a dark time in the country. But, you know, it's not so dark because Trayvon was 2012. You know, George Floyd was, was that 2020? Breonna Taylor was 2020? Yeah. Um, I forget the kid's name, but he, he lived in Colorado and he had, I think he had like autism or something. He was walking home. He had a hoodie on. Poor baby, I forget his name. He deserves for me to say his name, but um, that's the one that troubles me the most. Um, that he was, um, I think he was walking home I want to say brilliant artistic kid as well right he was <clears> that, uh, used to work with the cats I want to say and he would like play his trumpet at or was it a trumpet I'm not sure um in any event uh I am looking for him I can't find him oh here he goes right here uh Elijah McLean he deserved for me to say his name Elijah McClain. That's the one that really bothered me because as he was dying, as as the police snuffed his life <laughs> out, he was still trying to say positive things to them. If you ever read the transcripts, it'll it'll break your heart. He was trying to say, I love you. Why are you doing this to me? I'm sorry. What did I do wrong? You know, and, uh, you know, that type of mind, it's very difficult to grasp um, traumatic things in the way that you know, you and I can can process them. And so he really didn't know what was happening to him and couldn't understand it. And then he was not alive anymore. And to my understanding, no one has been held accountable for that. So shout out to Colorado for that one. All right. Uh, some more black history. You okay? Trying to be. Trying to be. You know, as... Talk to me. We're fathers, man. And it's... Not that, not that, not that being fathers makes us more susceptible to those feelings. Because always, uh, you know, you hear about something being done wrong to a woman, and you hear somebody say, "I got daughters," as if that gives them the you know, uh, more ground to feel. But our fears are different. Yeah, I don't think we're more empathetic. Especially with regards to the example that I use, because we all have mothers, nothing else. So we can all relate to the idea of love from and to a woman. But our fears are different when you're when you're a parent. And when you're a father to a black boy. And these stories are not history. They're today. Right. We learn about slavery in school as part of our very, very dark, difficult and traumatic past it's history the things we're talking about right now they aren't history they're still normal today they're not one-offs they're not these rare things that happen every now and then 
you know how you know proud I am and you know you if you follow me on social media you'll see my kids you know and the comments that I get about my kids they always make me feel incredible I just wonder at what point for my son specifically people see him different than beautiful and oh my god he's so cute is it when I get his first haircut is it when somebody braids his first cornrow like when it what what at what point does he go from when does he go from oh my god to oh my god and i'd be naive to think it's not gonna happen to him he is beautiful that is my baby boy but i'm my mom's baby boy and i'm 40 years old thank god still here but have I had moments where I didn't think I'd come out the other side of it okay and I would get home and be able to tell the story? Yes. A couple times in the last 200 days. One time in the last 30 days. Um, I don't know. It's, it's becoming more and more difficult to not be affected by it. Even when we, t- when we talk to each other about show topics, we're searching for the light. We want to come on one day and just talk and laugh and smile, but I often find myself feeling guilty for being the person that's shining the flashlight on the stuff that we shine it Me on. Me too. Because people would argue their fatigue with hearing it. I know what you mean. I'm so sorry, y'all. And listen. we have to do It's this. very, very difficult to abuse someone i won't even say a child but say you're abusing someone their whole life and you tell them to stop complaining about it stop bring why do you keep bringing it up because you keep doing it yeah um and there are people that are exhausted at hearing us talk about the way the world is viewed through our eyes They're tired of feeling guilty about it. And they're tired of hearing us talk about it. And last week, when Camille went on Bill Maher's show on HBO, talked about how privileged he is, so there's no white privilege. And uh, systemic racism doesn't exist. And, you know, Bill Maher someone who I've viewed as an ally for a decade easy sat and agreed with him because they're both just tired of race being interjected into anything as if we're the ones doing it we don't say hey look at me different because I'm black please and they know so many black people that are tired of being felt sorry for and are tired of hearing about it Okay, so the the black people that you know feel that way, and you know that for sure. You're speaking for all of them. Or are you speaking to the one who, like Camille, uh, who, like Jason Whitlock, who, like Candace Owens, want to be comfortable around the colleagues that help them put money in their bank accounts? And they want to show gratitude for the positions that they've in the the places that they've ascended to in their lives. These are educated, accomplished, successful black people. I want to say something. 
while we're on that topic, for those examples that you name, there are so many more accomplished, wealthy, successful, whatever black people who acknowledge the reality of the situation. And they are very much the exception. They, you know, they managed to navigate these waters a little differently and things worked out a little bit better for them, but it's, a, it was a fluke or whatever. You know, I, I Ramses recognize that for me to even be on the radio, like it's just an alignment of the moon and the stars and the planets. This was never a realistic thing for me in my lifetime to be able to use radio in a city as big as, you know, the one that I'm from, which is Phoenix, um, and make a living off of it, right? It's just, it's so, I, I thought that I was going to just get a job the same as anyone else. And so, you know, there are many more people who will acknowledge that, you know, so I just, I, I think it's, there are some people who are going to go against the grain, of course, and some people just prefer to be antagonistic, but, you know, for the most part, everyone kind of agrees that you get a tougher go if you're a woman, you get a tougher go if you're gay, you get a tougher go if you're black or brown, you get a tougher go if you are handicapped, if you, you get a tougher go if you're Muslim, you get a tougher go if you're, you know, any of these sorts of things. Try being all of the above. There you go. So, I know some gay black women who... Imagine gay black Muslim women. Oh yeah, no. Those are the people that, honestly, those are the people that really get out there and make the world change. Superheroes. They, yeah, exactly. Um... But, um, yeah, so, um, again, I, I want to make sure that I, oh, another thing, while we're on the subject, I'm not prepared to talk about this at length, but I do want to mention um, Emmett Till mm. briefly. Um, a lot of folks might know the story of Emmett Till, but it's not too dissimilar from uh, George Denny Jr. Um, and, and in brief, uh, you know, he was, he was a little bit lighter skinned, black child, he was 14. He went from Chicago down to, I can't remember what state it was, but some Midwestern, Southern state, and uh, whistled like kind of like a, uh, what's that whistle you do? Fox whistle. Fox whistled at a white woman as she was leaving a, a grocery store. And so he did the little whistle. Uh, and then he says, bye baby, to the, to the lady. And then, um, you know, the lady keeps walking or whatever. And then, Folks came, snatched him out of his bed, beat him up. Uh, I think there's that's they dragged him behind a car, uh, dumped his body in the river, anchored his body to something, and threw him in a, in a river. If I'm not mistaken. And the reason we know his name is because his mom, uh, as G as she was, had an open casket funeral for him. And then so everyone, all the press, was able to come and take pictures of his body body was all beat up and bruised and it had been in water and so forth and so it was just it was very scary to see a human being in that shape and it kind of painted the picture of what he had gone through in his last moments of his life by going bye baby to a white woman and then uh of course you know the woman in the court you know when they found the guys that did it who never went to jail for that um but the, the woman lied in her testimony and um, she admitted that she lied in her testimony on her deathbed. And so she lived with that lie her whole life. And then she died, I want to say in the 80s 
Um, and it happened in Mississippi. Mississippi, that's where he went, yeah. But, um, but yeah, so uh, another story. But the reason I wanted to bring up Emmett Till is because he's a little bit lighter skinned. And, uh, you know, the amount of melanin, you know, there is a correlation overall. But blackness is kind of like the, the scarlet letter. It just applies to everyone with, you know, any detectable um, African uh, roots. And um, somehow it's counted against us uh, in, in our time in this country uh, when it comes to a lot of things, um, including life and death. Um, but I do want to get, uh, some more stuff out of the way. Um, I'm going to have to get through these a little bit quicker. Um, so Memorial Day, uh, let me talk about that one. Memorial Day was started by African Americans honoring fallen Union soldiers. Um, it's a little tidbit a lot of folks don't know about. So, um, there's that one. Um, also, shout out to all of our unions. You know, this, <laughs> the magical marketing of capitalism has made people view unions right the organization of labor for the laborers to protect the laborers to do what's best by the laborers as the bad guys yeah even laborers <laughs> view it that way oh man uh, sorry well you know i think you said it before the 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 greatest trick the devil ever pulled convincing was, the world he didn't exist and i think that that's that's a great stand-in for capitalism, you know. But um, another thing I wanted to get off was that the Statue of Liberty was originally created and gifted to the United States um, to celebrate the freed slaves, not immigrants. I think that's very important. Wow. Have you you been to the Statue of Liberty, Q? I have, fortunately. I uh, used to go every week for a couple of months as you and I were traveling the world on cruise ships. One of mine en route from Bermuda to New York docked at the Statue of Liberty every trip. Nice. I um, I went to the Statue of Liberty too. And all the history there, all the little signs that you can read and everything, all the, the people that give you the walking tours and all that stuff, they talk about all the immigrants that pass through there about everything you know except <laughs> the statue of liberty was originally created and originally gifted to the united states um to celebrate and to commemorate the uh freeing of the slaves the emancipate emancipation proclamation um and you know this erasure this whitewashing of history is something that is not lost on me and because i have a platform and i'm able to share these things you know i think that it i should share it you know and, and it should not be lost on you you know i'm um, listening to my voice because this is who we are and this that's just as much black history as dr king you know um that the intention behind that woman standing with that torch, holding that book, you know, is to commemorate the, the freeing of, of slavery, to, to suggest that America had made a, a transition from 
the old version of herself to the modern version of herself. And the fact that that was co-opted to suggest that every other immigrant was now welcome in America, it flies in the face of that. And I think that we need to know that. I think that we need to understand that the intent behind it, but we also need to know that that's another thing that was taken away from us. You know, we're here now, we lived here, we lived here for hundreds of years, and we're Americans. Our children have been born, their children have been born. So everybody here now is Americans, right? This is at the end of slavery. Everyone here is Americans. There's no direct connection with Africa. Now that we can go back to our ancestry, we didn't know our own African names, we couldn't speak the language. All this stuff was stripped from us, and we had no connection, you know? So we're Americans now, for better or worse. And there's this gift given to us by France, that um, is then taken from us as well. And so there's not even a thing to look to that says, okay, well, this is to commemorate that. Um, I think we're going to have to do a part two. Um, we definitely need to talk about the We Panthers. can do three or four parts. We got enough a month. Yeah, that's true. Um, but we definitely need to talk about the Panthers. Um, I want to make sure we talk about the Black Panthers and the Free Breakfast Program. And uh, we need to talk about... Um, crack how crack cocaine made its way into poor black neighborhoods if only they had treated it like a pandemic like they're doing this opioid crisis <laughs> a lot of less incarcerated and dead brothers and sisters yes indeed um but you know uh when we get into that we'll understand why that never happened that way yeah um but again there's a lot of black history here and uh Another thing that we're going to do at some point this month is I want to make sure that we have a guest up to talk about some of the um, the bills that are on the books, at least in Phoenix, where a good amount of folks listen to the show um, so that we can discuss some of the things that people are trying to do and take away from uh, Phoenicians in response to Joe Biden getting elected president and Trump not getting his second term. Um, dealing with some of that stuff in Georgia as well. Yeah, there's basically more attempts to disenfranchise yeah, voters. Definitely trying to <laughs> yeah, so. make it more and more difficult, and in some cases impossible, for us to show up and vote. Right, right. How so we, dare we exercise our rights? So that's what we're here for. Um, so we'll definitely have some guests up, um, be able to talk about all that and more. Um, but I think that's going to do it for us on this episode of Civic Cipher. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Ramses Ja. They call me Q Ward. And uh, if you have any questions, any topics um, for the show, um, you can hit us on our website, civiccipher.com. Um, please consider following our social media. That's also at Civic Cipher. And don't forget, you can download this episode and all previous episodes on your favorite podcasting platform or at civiccipher.com. And please, please, please consider becoming a Patreon. It really helps the show and it helps us grow. All right.